to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, it feels like it's been a while, but I finally made it to China. It was a very, very long, stressful flight, and I wasn't really able to settle down my bags until quite some time. To give you a rundown of what happened, that day I left Berlin, basically I didn't have an entry visa until the very last minute. The paperwork for my visa took a bit longer than expected. I missed the first part of staff orientation, so I was sort of really um, wanting to leave as soon as possible. The visa center in Berlin said they would give me my passport last Tuesday at 2 p.m. And I knew there was a flight leaving 6 p.m. that day. And so I was really hoping to take that flight. But I wouldn't know if my visa would get approved until I got my passport back on that very day. So I was all packed and I went to the visa center early and I got my visa approved at 2 p.m. So I immediately ran home bought my plane ticket, and then took a Uber to the Tegel Airport. Then I went on a 17-hour flight to Hong Kong with a connection to Qatar. After reaching Hong Kong, I then had to transfer, and two hours later, I finally reached my hotel in Zhuhai. Spent the next few days looking for apartments, and... Second night was a bit stressful as getting money was somewhat difficult. Most places didn't take my American credit card and many ATMs didn't take my bank card. Everyone here pays digitally with their phone, but you can't really set that up. They use WeChat and Alipay, but you can't set up those services until you have a bank account, a Chinese bank account, which you can't get until you have a residency permit. So, yeah. Um... A few kind staff members helped me out, and I'm definitely in a better place and feeling okay right now. My initial thoughts on Zhuhai is it's very hot and tropical, both weather conditions that I'm not a fan of, but I think I'm slowly mentally accepting of it, getting more accepting of it right now. Otherwise, the food is very good and cheap here, um, and I'll keep you updated on anything new once classes start. For today, I'm interviewing Accra Shep. Accra got his BA in art history and studio art from Princeton University and followed that up with a master's degree in art history from the Institute of Fine Arts in NYU, specializing in art conservatory. He also completed a Fulbright Fellowship in Indonesia, so we have that in common. Working primarily in photography, Accra has exhibited in spaces such as MoMA, the Chicago Art Institute, and the Whitney Museum. I met Accra during my time at Anderson Ranch in the winter of 2018. Accra was invited to the ranch to be a jury for the following year's art residence, and I got to sit in on that and look at that whole process and recognize just how crazy and arbitrary that whole system is and how lucky I was to get into all these residencies the past years. But Accra was there for a few days. I got to have dinner with him and talked over drinks and food late at night. And I eventually asked him to be interviewed. 
Crow and I talk about the Wall Street protests, making websites, social justice in the arts, and the power of photography. Actually, Accra was the second person I ever interviewed for this podcast. As I listened and edited the audio, I found my younger self sounding somewhat awkward and tentative. Although I'm not sure exactly how much has changed since then, I do feel like a different person from the voice that I am hearing a year and a half ago. But I guess that means I'm growing and hopefully in a good direction. In any case, here's a conversation, and you can be the judge of that. Enjoy. Okay, I'm going to sneeze in a moment. Get that out of the way. <coughs> okay, that's done. All right, so I'm here with Accra Shep, who's visiting Anderson Ranch, and and so Accra is a photographer, and I get you do a bunch of video as well, I believe. I do a little video. There'll be more, perhaps. It's just if there's time. Um, I have some installation things that I'm interested in, and I do artist books. Mm. I was thinking, why don't you start off with where you're born and where how you got how you ended up in New York? Okay, so I was born in New York, so that's very easy. Um, I didn't I, know that because <laughs> I just heard I just heard all that stuff was Chicago. Right. So I lived. I was born on the Lower East Side, and um, yeah, and. You were asking where I was born and what was the other one? Yeah, what was growing up in, I guess, in New York like and how was that, how did that affect you in your art career? Well, I lived there till I was 10 and then moved to Massachusetts. But New York City was certainly a powerful influence. It was the 60s. I mean, it was the 60s that everyone remembers. Of course, it and you did moved away at 12. 10. Oh, 10. Okay. 1972. But it wasn't the 60s that you often see played out in popular films. Mm -hmm. It was grittier and more innocent even. Innocent. Innocent, yeah. You know, it was an innocent time. People really believed in the goodness of their fellow man. It was peace and love. It was, a, it was naive, yes, but it was a little bit more innocent. Mm. We're much more jaded now. Um, I guess that would be the world, though. Yeah, right? pretty much. <clears throat> like you can't like parents won't let their kids walk home at by themselves as often, right? This um, people lock their doors. Well, the bad things that were happening that are happening now were happening then. There was just less recognition yeah. of it, and now, now as before, most danger comes from people you know, not from people you don't know. Yeah. So it's a bit of paranoia. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I didn't know you moved away so young because I also grew up in New York. Really? But moved away in eighth grade. I don't know what age that is. Um, six is 11, <laughs> seven is 12, 13. All right. Yeah. So I moved away when I was 13 and I'm pretty sure New York didn't have that big of an influence. Like I don't really have too much to hold on to in terms of like memory or things. Oh, when I came back to New York, I knew where everything was. You did? Yeah. Yeah, no, I love I love the city. So then you went to Massachusetts, and yeah. then from there you got your went to Princeton. I right? went to Princeton for my undergrad, and I went to NYU for grad school. Studied conservation of art, and you studied studio art and art history. No, I studied how to fix broken art. And oh art no, I mean I, I mean in Princeton. Princeton, oh at Princeton, I studied studio art. Yeah, I started off as an engineering student, um, did that for two years, and then I finished up in art. What was that? like? It was good. It was a good choice. Yeah. Um, 
I was a mediocre, mediocre engineering student, and you know, it's a very nice school that's expensive, and there was no reason to be a mediocre student if, you know, that was a waste of time and energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the path of engineering, while it was stable, it wasn't terribly... Fulfilling? Well, I don't know. I was studying aerospace engineering because I wanted to do stuff with outer space because I thought, what could be cooler than that? I was good at math and science, so why not do that? Yeah. I had a friend who did that too, and then he got delusional about just how difficult it would be to actually do something like that. Well, there's, there, it's twofold. The people who call the shots in aerospace are the defense industry. Hmm. So you have, to have, you have to be able to make peace with you know, a tail fin on a rocket is a tail fin on a missile. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing is that aerospace is a boom-bust industry, so you can be employed for a number of years and then not be. And part of that is connected to projects. A project will run, and then the project will be over, and then everyone is let go. Hmm. And, you know, if you're working on a satellite, something sciencey, things can go wrong. Rockets blow up, and you spend 15 years developing a satellite mission, and then it ends, mm-hmm. and then your career is done. It's, but it's not like art is any less stable, right? Well, no, art is, well, nothing is stable, as I found, found yeah. out. But not even banking. I have friends who are bankers. It's all an illusion. We just get paid less. But the stability, the relative stability is about the same. But coming back to how I got to be me, I had taught myself photography at some point during high school, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it very much. And I had made a plan to just continue making photographs no matter what I did, even while I was studying engineering. So I... That's very mature of you. I well, think. I don't know if I if I had like made a contract that I signed. No, but I don't think I had anything at that age where I was like, I've got to make sure I keep doing this. Yeah, well, I took my first photo class in college yeah. because I figured, well, I taught myself, I might have missed a bunch of things that mm-hmm. are important. So I took a photo one class, and it was just serendipitous that the person who was running the photo program was a very prominent, gifted photographer who was a gifted and generous teacher named mm-hmm. Emmett Gowan. He's still alive, I should say. Name, yes, named Emmett Gowan. <laughs> and... It was a joy to take classes with him because he was so insightful. He had that Mm. gift for Southern storytelling that some people from the South do. And I wasn't the only person who wasn't an art major taking regular classes. He drew people from all over the campus. Mm. But then when it came time to really decide on my major, I thought, well, this is what's really going well, so I should do this. Yeah. And so I switched to art and did studio art. And finished up with that. And it was... And then you were let go. Then it was nervy (laughs) because as an engineering student, there was employment at the end of four Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And... People were applying for jobs their senior year, right? Yeah. And with art, well, I applied to graduate school and I got into the art conservation program at at NYU. How did you make that switch and why? How did you go from studio art to like Deciding. Well, I wanted to make a living, and my father is a musician, and 
has done very well with that. But he always had a teaching position. He had a base income upon which the, um, the music income was extra. And Emmett Gowan was no different. He sold quite a bit, mm -hmm. but he had the base income from teaching. So I figured I should have a job that provides base income too. And I thought, well, I know a lot of science and I know a lot of art. So that kind of indicated mm. art conservation as a possible career choice mm. to, for base income. I didn't do it in the end because after meeting a lot of conservators, it turns out I wasn't the only one with this plan of being an artist and a conservator. <laughs> but unfortunately, no one was clever enough to pull it off. What do you mean? No like, one, so they had this idea, but actually it's a completely different skill set. It's so a they completely can't... different mindset. When you are conserving work, it is a conservative practice. Hmm. The brain that you use for making art is entirely different. Hmm. One of the epiphanies I had was in a paper conservation class. That was my concentration because it was as close to photo um, conservation yeah, as I could yeah. get. Yeah, and that's why you knew so much about how cotton Oh, yes, yeah. Acid hydrolysis, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Um, the class was being taught by this wonderful woman, Antoinette King. She's gone now. She used to be the head of paper conservation at the Modern. And I was, we were doing this exercise where we had to have a work of art. This was a real work of art, but not a valuable one. A print bought it at a thrift, short, thrift yeah, store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was missing a corner of it. Uh -huh. And I had to replace the corner and match it. And there's all these requirements. The matching has to be close but not perfect because you want to make the work seamless, but you don't want to fool the people that, you know, this area of loss is really not an area of loss. You want to always make sure that people know the work has a history, but you don't want but to But the have... people know, like, viewers included? Yes, viewers I included. Know, I didn't know that. So that's, that's an American style of conservation. Okay. There are other cultures where it has to be absolutely seamless and you can't tell. Right. So I did the fill, but there was a little corner of the print where there was part of the etching was missing. Hmm. And um, it was a scene of a marsh at night and it was just grasses. So I took pen and ink because I figured that would look like an etching. And I drew some grasses in the shape of a corner, uh -huh. and I put the fill in. And when I presented it in class, when we were presenting yeah. our work, everyone just oohed and ah. They were like, how do you know what went in that corner? Did you find a print of it in some <laughs> book? And I was thinking to myself, it's just marsh grass. It's like straight lines, straight wavy lines. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't so complicated. And it was in that moment I realized, oh, I probably crossed a line there. And it was really easy for me to cross. There were other the teacher, Did the teacher not like that? or When I said I just made it up, you know, it was clear. It wasn't that I was bad or wrong. I think I got a good grade on it. It's just something that I shouldn't have done. Mm. And I learned that. Yeah. But I don't know that I wanted to do that. And that's why it's a different head. When you're making art, you're supposed to be thinking of things that don't exist. Mm -hmm. and when you're a conservator, you can only work with the available evidence, no more, no less. Mm. And so you're working. I learned a great deal about materials. In fact, some of the techniques that I learned in conservation, I use in my work now. Right, right. So, yeah, so I make these leaf prints. Um, where, I saw that, the tobacco ones. Yeah. 
So there are these life-size images that I print on leaves, not just tobacco leaves, but that's a more recent series. And the chemistry of sensitizing the leaf, of preparing the leaf so to they take can the be image. printed. Yeah, on. that's all chemistry that I learned in art conservation. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk more about how you started printing on leaves? Oh gosh, um, I guess this is what I remember. Uh-huh. It may not be true, but it's what I remember. I was thinking of the 18th century silhouettes. Uh-huh that were done in colonial America and was thinking how simple and touching they were, how, you know, it was people trying to preserve their trace in the face of their own mortality. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be beautiful to put this shadow on this dried leaf, which in itself was kind of a dried husk, a kind of a shadow. And I never thought that I could get anything but a black and white image, something quite um, digital, yeah. in effect. I didn't think it would be tonal. So I made some tests. The first ones were disastrous. The leaf, I put it in the developer, and it's an organic material, and it's alive. So the back of the leaf touched the developer and became wet, and it expanded like fourfold, and it rolled up into a tube the size of a pencil. <laughs> I couldn't untease it because... It expanded so rapidly, the front side couldn't get wet and expand as well. So then I realized, well, I have to glue the leaf to a piece of paper to keep it flat. During So there are all these little steps that I learned along the way. Yeah, yeah. And once I'd gotten it down, I was so surprised. I got a tonal image. I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to do with it. Well, I didn't know what to do with it because it was stunning. I mean... I'm sure you were excited when you saw it. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was one of these things where, you know, when you start a project and it's a very fertile project, everything you do works out. It was one of those things where you, it kind of lulls you into a false sense of complacency that this is like magic. Yeah, you and found it, a new technique and you can, well, yeah, it was the possibilities like, are all endless. These, but what it is is that it's this wide open territory. And so it's almost like no matter what you throw, it's going to go through the hoop at first. Mm-hmm. And that's good because you need that positive reinforcement, yeah. especially with a new technique, which is very labor intensive. Yeah. Later on, not everything worked out, but it was always fascinating. I was learning how to talk about the figure in a way that I didn't know about because no one had been talking about the figure that way. I knew conceptually I was repositioning the figure inside of the natural world, inside of nature, if you will. Physically, yeah. It was in the leaf. And these leaves, primarily not the tobacco leaves, but the other leaves, they were garbage because that's what what dead leaves are. They're garbage. Of course, dead leaves aren't garbage, but... Relative to our use. Well, if you drive a car and you need gasoline and you like to walk on sidewalks and pavement and you like elevators and electricity and power plants, then leaves are garbage. And all these other things which people say they really don't like, that's what people really love. So I was kind of repositioning the figure Mm -hmm. to this space where people were no longer the center of the universe. Right. But something along the way happened that I hadn't, that I couldn't have foreseen. Not that I intended that or anything else what was that was that i took the the figure out of time it no longer felt bound to a particular period because they, it wasn't on a photographic paper or because it didn't feel like a photograph yeah okay 
my dealer has called them paintings by accident. <laughs> Not that he would recall. Um, it was a total slip. My parents have called them paintings. They well know that they're, everyone knows that they're photographs. Yeah. It looks like there was, it, I guess what it does is it subverts some of the machine quality mm. of the photograph, which has come to be prized by photographers that, yeah. that clarity, which is beyond the capability of the human hand. Right, right, right. But it does something else. And I wasn't prepared for that. There was a quality that went along with timelessness. It almost felt like these were people from long ago who are now dead. Mm -hmm. Like foss these, maybe fossilized. The memento moris. Yeah. Very close to what I'd been thinking about from the 18th century silhouettes. Yeah. So it was really kind of strange. And I struggled to find language that would accurately talk about what I was mm. finding. And that tripped me up for a long time because... Both for yourself and in actual academic, academic writing? Well, trying to talk about the work to, so I could share it with others. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to know why where you, is this coming why from. Why did it and all those well, things. Well, why I was doing it was, that was an easy one, but what was it, what, where was it going? Mm. How did it fit into the rest of portraiture? And what's really interesting was maybe about six or said, no, maybe 10 years after I invented the process. It's really strange to say that, but I did invent the process. You can a, say it. <laughs> a, a Vietnamese photographer, Bin Dan, uh -huh. created another technique to make images on leaves, but he placed the leaf, he placed the negative directly on a living leaf, and the photosynthesis would be altered based on how much light arrived at the leaf. And because he started with fresh leaves, he would encase the leaf in a lucite block, a and block then, of acrylic, to keep it from changing. And degrading. Yeah, because the leaf changes shape as it, as it dries out. I would dry my leaves first, right. so I worked with dried leaves, so that process had already taken place. Right, right. You don't need to worry about it warping as much, at least. No, it wouldn't warp unless it got wet. Right, right. And you try not to let your art get wet under any circumstances. <laughs> In general. So that was fascinating. Um, um, I guess I can tell this story. There's no bad guys in this story. Uh -huh. um, ben Dom got a lot of wonderful press for his first exhibition, which was about what the Vietnamese called the American War. Okay. He had printed on these leaves from Vietnam images of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And they were beautiful. And they were written up. And that morning, I was living in Chicago at the time, a photo curator at the Art Institute of Chicago called me up and said, Accra, did you see this? Because I don't know if they had acquired one of my leaf prints, but they ultimately did if they hadn't already at that time. And she was concerned that I would feel bad, that I would feel, you know, there's this sense in the arts, if you do something, you like to be acknowledged as a person who's done that thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a big world and his work was wonderful. And as I imagined and it was pointed out to me independently by others, there were lots of curators who knew my work before Bindam's work. So that was clear. Yeah. And it was just a, you know, it was a point that's easily forgotten. No one, that's nothing, it's of zero importance, relatively speaking. Yeah. 
but yeah, so that was a funny thing that that came out of that. And it was a, it was actually an interesting learning experience yeah. to um, to be able to give someone the credit that was due them for a beautiful project and not be concerned right. about it. You know, it's a large world. Why should it take away from what I'm doing? Yeah. So in any event, so um, I haven't done the leaf prints for a while, and it's been on my mind, but I have some projects that I have to get done before I can do that. I started working with some lotus leaves, and I'd like to continue that. Lotus leaves are exquisite right. and very easy to print on. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to that. Yeah. I was going through your website. It took me a while to find your website because your URL is Flag Parades, if I believe. Is that oh, correct? The, um, there is another URL, acrashep.com, and I, it points to flagparade.com. Right, right. That's, that's how I figured out that it was you because I think I went on some website that had your URL and then it forwarded me to that. Well, what happens when you, when you do websites, you can, you can have a URL point to another URL. Right, right, right. And you can mask the domain. So initially I had masked the domain so it would look like acrossship.com. But the problem is if you bookmark a page, it only bookmarks the home page. You can't bookmark the interior page. Mm. So I thought, oh, well, that's a bother. Um, but so why I, do you have these two ones? Because Flag Parade was, a, um, was a, another project. Um, it was a public art project that I did mm-hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s. It had to do with Martin Luther King Day. Okay. It was rediscovering a new way to celebrate that holiday. And at the time, I was concerned that it would just be a day for sales, hmm. as it was for President's Day. Right, As right. it's turned out, Martin Luther King Day is a day of community service and prayer breakfasts. And I'm very disillusioned with that hmm. because there's no child in this country or anywhere else in the world, really, who's going to work up a sweat and say, oh, goody, today is a day of community service and prayer breakfast. It's like, and all the good rituals, candy, presents, presents, fireworks, they were all taken. So what was a person to do? Um, And then I remembered on a trip to Italy, I was in the town of Siena for this biannual horse race called the Palio. Okay. And it's a famous horse race where they have real racehorses racing around this oval piazza in the center of the town. It's very exciting. But before the horse race, every section of town has its own symbol, the oak cluster or I don't know. That was the only one I remember. Right. It's sort of mascot And it's on flags. It's on handkerchiefs. Everyone is flying these from their windows. They've got them wrapped around their neck. It was everywhere, and it was the most exuberant thing I'd ever seen. And I thought, flags, what about flags? Now, you don't have to make a flag like Betsy Ross with needle and thread because we live in the 21st century, and we have hot glue, and we have Elmer's glue, and we have staples. And yes, if you want, there's needle and thread, too. Yeah, you could so if you wanted to. And so I collected all of this scrap fabric. Hmm. And... I held these flag-making parties on the Sunday before Martin Luther King Day, which is on a Monday. 
and I had all of this ceremonial food. I thought the food should be color-based so it could represent people of all colors. Mm -hmm. um, lots of chocolate. chocolate. Well, chocolate for brown people, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, strawberries for red people, you know, trying to get cover all the colors that we associate with people. Mm -hmm. And it was a great success. Mm -hmm. And so then I decided to make it a public art project and I invited at this point, it was the early 2000s. I invited some local schools so this in New was, York City. This has been happening over many years. It had been. I started it in the mid-90s, and okay. it ran for about six or seven years. And then I ran out of... It was hard for me to just do on my own all the time. Yeah. The idea was that people all across America would make a flag and then fly it out their window. I made a, I hired a, a, a Java engineer to write an applet where you could make a digital flag and save it to your computer so it could be your the backdrop of your computer. Right, right. And so you could just make this flag. So the flags could be everywhere. They, you know, it was before mobile platforms, but it could be on your phone or your tablet. Mm -hmm. It could be hanging out your window. And if you wanted, you could reuse the same flag every year mm -hmm. or you could make a new one. And it was up to you what was on the flag. And we held a parade the first year. We got a little bit of press. And this was in Chicago or New York? In New York. Okay. I was living in Chicago, but I came back to New York for it. The first year, I think my mother heard about the parade on NPR. Really? Yeah. I didn't remember the NPR person being there. The following year I ran, we had six schools as opposed to five schools. And, and one of them was a Muslim educational school in Brooklyn. I was super excited. But we got rained out that year because uh -huh. it's January and we had a lot of press. CNN came, Bloomberg came, NBC wow. came. Yeah, I know. It would have been great. And at that, that was the last year I ran it. I just mm -hmm. ran out of energy. I needed, I needed help to do it. Yeah. It was more than one person could yeah. do. I was workshopping at schools. I had developed a curriculum, an online curriculum for the art teachers yeah. to share about the civil rights movement. Yeah. And the idea with the children K through 12 that I was working with was that the flag could be anything you want. I would tell the kids, yeah. if you want to put a pizza on your flag, then knock yourself out because mm. Martin Luther King was all about people being themselves and it wasn't scripted. No, I didn't think anyone was going to put a pizza on their flag. But I wanted to give them permission to really put right. what they wanted. Right. Open it up. Yeah. Not try to script define it. Define what is creative and not. And yeah. What's allowed and not. So it was it was wonderful. And to this day, I occasionally have friends, mostly friends in the arts, say, Are you gonna do the flag thing again this year? They still miss it. And I should and I will. But it's just, just one just of the need to apply for a grant, right? And a grant would be beautiful for that, but yeah. I don't know if anyone's sensitive to that condition fully because it's a holiday and, mm. you know, I don't know how people perceive those things. I can ask around, certainly. It, it didn't really occur to me to think that... That know, was the first thing I thought. Yeah. I was like, something on that scale, I would definitely try to find a grant or institution to help back it up. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I yeah. certainly know a number of people now and I can ask around. Mm. But it was one of those things where I was a younger artist and had more time, but it was an early, it's so funny, I don't think of myself as having a lot to do with public art, but I've worked a lot with public art over the years. I mean, if you ask me, I would define that as social practice, yeah. you know, the, that whole flag thing, that it, it, if you don't it, want to think of it that way. No, no, no I'm to. very happy to have yeah. it described that way, but it felt 
it, I, I guess I had always thought that if you worked in social justice, it was a conscious decision. You woke up one morning and you said, social justice. <laughs> and, you know, it's not that you had to put on a spandex uniform with a cape or anything yeah. like that. But it was a conscious decision. But this was, this came out of the genuine need to help people figure out, well, we have a new holiday. Yeah. And at that time, it was contested. There were states like the... I think, state, I think some states still contested. Well, Arizona, they? I think, finally permitted it. They oh, were really? a long holdout. It took out. a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so the URL is a way to memor- memorize well, that's, it. That was, that was the first URL that I purchased, and it mm. came with a big chunk of server space. So all of my spare server space... Was spent on your other portfolios. Yes, yeah, so I've got like... 200 gigabytes of server space there. Yeah, which and, isn't that much now. But my but my but my websites aren't aren't video no, heavy. No, no, so no. I don't need that much. No, cool. Um, I guess I was looking through your website, and so the major things I came across, which I wanted to know more about, was I I saw the the seemed like the latest project online are the images you took of the Wall Street mm-hmm. protests images, and the last thing that. I was interested in was you took all these photographs of all the different islands in New York. And some of the things I thought about were at least themes and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong or, but I noticed, I guess these themes of things that are unseen things that potentially need more thoughts or exposure, especially with the islands of New York. I thought that was, um, yeah, that's a that I, I, this project I need to finish. This that's another expensive project because Getting, you have to boat to each island. I have to hire a boat yeah. to get to the last twenty or so islands. So I've been to I've been to a, a number of them. I basically finished the borough of Staten Island, but the uh, some other boroughs I've just barely begun. And with that project, I heard a radio interview by husband and wife team who had written a book called The Other Islands of New York, and it blew my mind. And I thought about it for a couple of years, and I thought, I need to, I need to find these islands. I need to see them, because I was born in New York City, and I had no idea there was over 40 islands. Mm-hmm. And in previous times, in the 19th century, there were even more islands. There was an island in the East River called Mill Rock. Hmm. Not much of a name. It was a small island, but it was in the way. And so the powers that be at City Hall dynamited the island and <laughs> blew it up so it no longer exists. I feel and, like you should still photograph where it is. <laughs> like take a boat. To the and, side of Mill just, Rock. And just photograph it. Because it, it, it was there. Well, it, it, perhaps that'll be a coda to the piece, yes. That's not a bad idea. Technically, how I've been drawing the line is that if an island is above water at high tide, it gets to be an island mm-hmm. because of parts of New York City which are only visible at low tide. Yeah. And so they are land for part of the day. Right. And so, and, and some islands I count as islands because they're historical islands, like Coney Island, which is connected to the mainland by a little neck of landfill. So technically, might not be an island. But it's historically an right. island. So mm-hmm. those islands that were historically islands that were connected so they could put a roadway or a subway, those can still, I would still consider islands because right. there's one point of access. Right, right. There are several islands like that. 
And that project was very much about visibility. You, you nailed it. It's who knew? And in a moment when we are thinking about climate change and rising sea levels and our connection to the places that we live, to not know that fundamental feature about the city, I thought it was not just unfortunate, it was irresponsible. Because how can you know what you want to do to protect yourself from rising sea levels, from climate change, if you don't even know what your city looks like, if you don't even know where it is. That's the first step about being able to understand where you are is knowing what it looks like. Yeah. And so it was a very basic premise that gave me a lot of latitude. And I got some good support for the project. There were various museums, like the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Museum of Modern Art, they either commissioned or purchased works or That's both. Great. So yeah, so there was a lot of support and from non-art agencies as well, the Department of Environmental Protection that does the sewers yeah, and water yeah. protection. They were super helpful. Yeah. Um, it was just, again, it's a project where I had set out, I created a Google map and there were like 500 sites that I wanted to visit. And I so did the budget. that's why it's taken so long. I, I, I did the budget and it was well beyond what I could self-finance. So I went as far as I could. So I've been looking for financing for How it. How many islands have you gone out of the 500? Oh, no, these are 500 sites. Oh, um, oh. And some of them are close by each other, just around various waterways. Okay. They're about 40, 42 islands. But a- along the water... When you water- say the sites, you mean sites... Are, so you might have multiple sites, sites. On, a, on an island. Island, yes. Okay. Um, and there are also inlets and waterways that are associated with these islands, which are just too amazing to ignore. Right. If I'm going to these places, I should go there as well. Right, right. And so it's not just landscape. I find people who either live or make their business on the waterfront, and they know about the islands. Yeah. So they get to be part of the project as well. Right. So, yeah, so that project is very dear to my heart because it talks about New York, which I really love as a city. Faults and all, many of them, but it's just you know it's where you're where I'm from. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to ignore that. Yeah, the other projects, the occupying Wall Street, that has on the website. I kind of spell it out. I think maybe not. I no, actually, I don't tell the full story. I just you, talk about the work. You don't. I mean, like it was interesting because I was trying to do research and I actually found at least information on just that was available was oftentimes I knew there's more than you were letting on online. Yeah. Well, when I give talks about the work, I'll I'll share this story that I'll I'll share with you now. So a friend of mine had posted on Facebook that some women had been pepper sprayed in Union Square and what the heck was going on in New York City. And Mm -hmm. I had remembered vaguely, no definitive memory, but perhaps two days before on NPR, there'd been a mention of some kind of, not really a protest, but some action that had happened. You start with that wa- person who is naked, right, on Wall Street? I, you know, I, I don't, I can't even be that specific. Something happened down yeah. near Wall Street. Yeah. And then two days later, a friend of mine who is, I think she's in, oh, I forget where she is. I'm going to say Virginia, but she's not in Virginia. Uh She's far away. Posted this about my city, and I didn't know. And 
So then I emailed a friend who lives in Tribeca, and I said, what's happening downtown? Uh -huh. And they responded the following day, oh, we're out of town. We don't know. Um, hope you find out. <laughs> um, and where were you? I, I was living, where was I living at the time? Um, I was living in Queens. Okay. Not close to Wall Street. Right. And so it took me about a week to get down there. I remember the day. It was September 30th. The day before I started the project on October 1st. And I didn't know where on Wall Street it was. Right. I just took the train to Wall Street. And started walking. Well, I figured if it's a protest and not a small one, yeah. I was going to be able to hear it. Right. So I got off the subway and I listened. And I found it in about five minutes. Yeah. Wow. And I was so stunned. You were talking earlier about memories of New York City, and you know you lived there till you were 13, and there was nothing that really stuck with you. I remember a great deal. I remember when Shirley Chisholm ran for president, mm -hmm. the first black person, the first woman to run for president credibly. I remember actions taken by Cooper Union students. I remember Bread and Puppet Theater staging parades with the giant puppets before they went up to Vermont. This is as a kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remembered the feeling of the 60s. I remember dashikis and tie-dye and black power and free love. I remembered how excited people were that things could change for the better and that it was one's responsibility to participate. And I got to this protest. And it came flooding back? Yeah. I, you know, and part of it was that I also knew that... When a person gets older, you're different from your younger self. So of course, yeah. I grew up and, you know, I was living on the Lower East Side, which is a hotbed of liberal activism. And I had heard stories about people as they grow older, they become more politically conservative. They're more worried about their finances. And I didn't have any magical illusions about myself. I didn't think, oh, I'm not going to be that person. It's hard, it's hard to fight that. Well, I didn't know. So yeah. I thought, well, I'll just know when I get there. Yeah. And when I got there on September 30th, 2011, I realized I wasn't that person after all. I was still the same person from 1968, mm. pretty much. And I had been waiting for so long. I was a freshman the year that Ronald Reagan was elected. That was the year everything really fell apart. Not with, not with Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford, but with Ronald Reagan. He started undoing everything that I cared about. Mm. And people think, oh, he was a wonderful president. How can you think this? He was a president who vilified black people and said that we were takers and we were destroying America. He was the president who went to a cemetery, a Nazi cemetery in Bitburg, Germany, and honored the Nazi soldiers along Jeez. with the Allied soldiers. I was just, I don't think he was such a good president. I'm sorry. Just on the basis of those two things alone. Yeah. And then we're, we're not even talking about the illegal funding of the right-wing um, fascist group in Central America with Oliver North. There's all these things that happened. And it undid so much of the work that was just beginning to be done. It hadn't really even it hadn't really even gone the whole way. Yeah, we're not too different right now. No, in the fact, the cycle. In fact, the work that had been started were 
coming back to trying to get it to where we were and make it better. It wasn't perfect then. No. And we're trying to make well, it better. It's never perfect. Well, more perfect, if yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah. Can't truly yeah. be perfect. So I got to Occupy Wall Street, and little did I know that evening, Joseph Stiglitz, the Pulitzer Prize-winning economist from Columbia University, he was addressing the crowd that night. Mm. And I saw the people's mic in action for the first time, which is where at the inner circle of people hear the initial speaker, yeah. he says a phrase, and then they turn around to the people who can't quite hear, and in unison, they repeat it. And the people Everything he said. said yes. Wow. The people's mic has now become the term mic check, because that's how you would begin the people's mic. You'd say, the inner circle would say, mic check, and then the next circle would say, mic check, mm. out as many times as there were people. Mm. And so people will say, oh, we're doing a mic check, meaning is this the people's mic? Yeah, yeah. And so it was kind of a, a thing. So anyway, so that's how I began the project. And I didn't think I was going to photograph it for very long because I thought this is clearly so powerful. I don't know if it will be historically important, but certainly in this moment, it needs to be seen. Yeah. And I made a couple of quick decisions. I needed to use a view camera, 4x5 camera, because I needed to see it clearly. And it had to be black and white because the location, Zuccotti Park, was terribly dark. It was sandwiched between all of these giant buildings. There was very little sunlight, and certainly in the fall, in October... Yeah, the gray skies. It was gray skies, and so there was no color. There was no color to be seen, so mm -hmm. black and white was really what I needed. And I didn't think I was going to have to photograph long because I thought, oh, there's going to be all these other photographers. I saw photographers there. There, there. there weren't. There were photographers. Not a lot. I mean, enough. We were all there. And I would chat with them, and I would go look at their websites to see the kind of work they were doing. And no one was doing work like I was doing. I was interested in these individuals. In the people. Who had come. They came from Germany. They came from Estonia. They came from Harlem. They came from all over the world to participate. And they all had individual stories. They all wanted to try to make things better. There was no collective. There were a group of individuals. And I didn't know on any given day, I would go there three or four times a week, what I was going to see. I had no idea what to expect. And I found that the other photographers were either interested in photographing the great mass of people because that talked about what they considered a protest, or they came with a preconceived notion about what they needed to photograph that day. That's mm. the professional press. And in the professional press, once people started reporting on it, and that was very late, that was at least a month into things, supposedly the protesters were predominantly young white men. Before they showed up or after the, the Well, press? that's what the, that's the story the press told. Uh -huh. It was mostly young white college-educated men. Uh -huh. But the people I was photographing were of all colors, right. of all ages. And I was wondering, were these journalists at the same protest that I was at? Did you find out? Well, of course they were at the same protest. But they had come with an idea of what the protest was. Mm -hmm. They had come with an idea. And this is, I've talked with journalists who teach in journalism school, like at Columbia. And this is a technique of the craft, where you stake out a position. You have decided before you arrive at the event, what the news is going to be, and you then 
gather the information to support to that fill view, it up. To, to support that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And as an artist, if you want to make bad art, that's what you would do because <laughs> you would it, it sub, totally subverts the process of investigation and discovery. So uh, there was no, I, it, it didn't never even occur to me yeah. that I would pretend to know what was going to happen before I got there. Yeah. And so my pictures looked really different from everyone else's. I wanted the only artificial contrivance is that in my images, I create the illusion of space where there was none. Everything was incredibly crowded, but I made sure that I, in general, photographed people from head to toe. So there was this feeling of space, right. sometimes with all kinds of people swirling about. Um, the images I saw online, yeah. the figures seemed to be mostly isolated, yeah, at least. because I wanted to see them. Yeah. And that was in itself just hugely different. I was thinking of August Sander and his images of the German people, and I was mm. really inspired by that. So that work I made, worked on for oh, maybe 11 months from October 1st to September 17th, the following year. September 17th, 2011, was when they date the first day of protest. A number of people claim to have been there on the first day. No, they can't all have been there. And you'd go every day? No, I went a few times a week. Okay. Um, I had to develop the film. I had to deal with it. It would have been great if I could have gone every day. But the people who were protesting, they knew me. Yeah. Um, the police officers who were patrolling knew me. I wanted to photograph everyone for the protest because a protest doesn't just have one side. Right. I wanted to photograph people who were part of the Wall Street establishment. I wanted to photograph the police. Yeah. And to a limited extent, I was able to do that. Um, I have a couple of wonderful images of the police that are very dear to me. And one of them is a pair of police officers the morning after they cleared the park. And one of them, uh, on all NYPD, they wear a little pin that establishes what precinct or what special division they belong to. And there's a division that I cannot remember the name, the acronym right now. It'll come to me after we talk, probably. That is the division. They monitor telecommunications. They investigate. They're spies. Mm -hmm. It's the spy division of the NYPD. Mm -hmm. And... I looked up the acronym because I wanted to give the police officer his photograph. And I thought he belonged to a precinct and I could just drop it off at the precinct. Yeah. yeah. And when I found out what this unit was, I'd never heard of it. I realized, I looked it up online, I realized what it was. I thought, oh, that's really crazy. Yeah. And a few weeks later, this was, um, my gallery ran an exhibition of the work where I changed the work once a week, adding more images to it every time I made them. It started, I think, in November of 2011 and ran to like May of 2012. It ran for an incredibly long time. So a month after you stopped started A month after I started photographing. Starting, okay. And it was in the front windows of Stephen Kasher Gallery. And a lot of, you know, it got a lot of attention. A lot of people saw it. I was really glad. And... The police visited the gallery one day. That guy. I don't know if that guy did, but the police, uh-huh. they, I mean, they were following up. They uh-huh. wanted to know who I was and what the purpose was. It really freaked the gallery out. But they <laughs> continued to show the work. They didn't threaten anyone. Yeah. They were just paying a friendly visit to see yeah, what was yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah. 
And so that was very strange,、uh-huh. but not unheard of. The police did a lot of actions. One of the saddest things that they did in trying to break up the protest before they cleared the park, people were donating food to the protesters, and they had set up a kitchen. In fact, I have a couple of pictures. There's one of a young man named Dane and a woman whose name I couldn't get. Beautiful images of them working in the kitchen. Everyone donating their time or donating food, and the police let the word out among the homeless that there was free food at Zuccotti Park. And because of the nature of the protest, the homeless and the dispossessed are definitely part of the ninety-nine percent. Right. So there was no turning them away. That was that was not morally or politically、right. possible. But these were people who were so down on their luck. They were really just concerned with the basics and all the other things. Trying to create conversation about inequality, they couldn't be bothered with. And many of them had drug habits or alcohol alcohol problems, and they made the encampment unsafe. There were women who, a couple of whom, none of I don't think they were seriously attacked, but they were attacked in their tents. Yeah, and they felt unsafe.、Yeah. And so that was very unfortunate. So the police were involved in a number、mm. of things that were not illegal but inappropriate. Yeah, and ultimately, the night the park was cleared, I was coming back. I was teaching at Princeton University at the time, and I was returning to New York City on the train. And I was I was getting messages from people that the park, you know, that we should come protect the park. But I was exhausted. It's an all day thing, and there's a lot of tra- it's an hour and a half of travel each way. I was going home. I would photograph the next morning. That night, the police took all the press and put them in what is known as a corral. One of those things with the barricades, a block from the park, so no one could see what was happening.、Mm-hmm. The people I knew who were participating in the protest told me they brought helicopters with searchlights to hover over the park and light it, and then they brought garbage trucks outfitted with snowplows and they bulldozed the park. Wow! The police were rounding people up. Billy clubs were used. Mace was used. It was a really violent cleansing of the park, and the premise. Was that it was a health hazard because、mm-hmm. the Second Amendment, no, the First Amendment, we have the freedom to assemble. There's very few things that can subvert it, but if there's a health hazard,、mm-hmm. then you can dis you can disperse the crowd. And so, because they were saying it was dirty, it was a health hazard. Yeah, and that was clearly a, a, a front. A, a, it was a pretext. The park、yeah. was not dangerously dirty. Overall, well, actually, there were there were. Committees that were all they did was clean the park.、Mm. They、um, there were committees. They called them.、Um, um, I'm forgetting the name now, but there were groups. Each had an, its own function. There was one that was to provide power, so you didn't have to tap into the grid. And they、yeah. had people-powered cycles, and they were concerned <clears throat> with sustainability. One of them, who I photographed, Winnie Wong, was instrumental in. Creating the Bernie Sanders movement、mm. because it was people like Winnie Wong who used their digital skills to get the message out, get the message get out, the information. And、yeah. she was one of. The, she, now she told me this, but when I wrote an article for the New York Times on some of these people who were in Occupy, she said she could only say that she was one of the people. But I truly believe she was the person who coined the hashtag "Feel the Burn."、Mm. 
So, I mean, she's, she's relatively speaking, a kind of important historical figure in, in, yeah, in recent yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. And all of these groups were doing their best to create this movement. And so there was a group just to clean up the park. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about with the images was how the protests functioned. So often, I'll start to talk about Occupy Wall Street, and people say, oh, whatever. They didn't think it lasted. Well, because after the park was cleared, the press went home. But the protests continued in strength through to the following year, September 17th. Shortly after that, Hurricane Sandy hit, and the protesters went into disaster relief and started to do Occupy Sandy. And so that Hurricane Sandy was really when the protests ended because right. people needed help. Right, right. And so the protests went on for quite a while. Yeah. And then the other thing that people think, oh, what did it do? Nothing. And I think quite the contrary. We now have the concept of income inequality, the 1% and the 99%. Overnight, we, we arrived at this concept. Do you know how much effort and money publicists and advertisers and PR people expend to try to shift public opinion a fraction of what Occupy Wall Street did literally overnight yeah. and quite permanently so that no one, no one on the far right, no one anywhere in the world can ignore the concept of the 99%. Yeah. It must be taken into account. Mm -hmm. It's on everyone's mind. That happened within the first week. Yeah, yeah. It was a very powerful movement. Another thing people talk about is, oh, it was so disorganized. There was no message. Some people were against fracking and other people were against, you know, the banks and other people were against this and that. Yeah. And there was a beautiful chart that a graphic artist had made. It was this chart of relatedness. And Occupy Wall Street's essential problem was that it wasn't a soundbite. Yeah. When the press came in, they wanted a soundbite. Yeah, yeah. But the problem was fracking, which is the extraction of shale oil gas from the ground, was only possible because of the impoverished farmers in rural America who couldn't make a living on their land farming. And so the oil company came and said, We'll lease your land and make it unusable for any purpose whatsoever in the future. So you basically sell it. Yeah, yeah. You make it unusable and you'll get some money, but you can't live on your land. No one can live on your land ever again yeah. because it'll be poisoned. And then we'll have this petrochemical, which will further the problems of global warming, all to drive Wall Street, all to drive. It does come back to income inequality. It's the income inequality faced by the farmers because they don't have a fair marketplace to bring their crops to the market. So everything was related, but it wasn't a soundbite. No, it wasn't. And that was untenable for the way the news was structured because the news was structured around the needs of corporate America yeah. as well. And it's only amplified with Twitter, yeah. Facebook, Instagram. And so all of these... All of these institutionalized, um, not, that's not the right term, all of these, um, it was, the media was working at the behest of the economic powers that be. And we always knew that that was problematic, and it became apparent in that moment. I don't think any of the journalists sought to 
tell the story in any way but what they thought was correct. But they couldn't see it because they had learned not to see it. Yeah. They had learned to understand the news in a particular way. Right. And so I was very excited when on the five-year anniversary the, of your photographs of, of the Occupy Wall Street protests. So that would have been um, September of 2016. Yeah. I did an article for the New York Times. Wow. Was it 26? Yes, it was September 2016. And it was a five-year follow-up. It was called Occupy Wall Street, Where Are They Now? And the photo editor of the New York Times, Jeffrey, invited me to, to do a story. And I was able to write it as well which was really wonderful. So I took the photograph I made in 2011 and I identified several people who were in the New York area to do a follow-up image mm. for, from 2016. Wow. The idea, and it's still the idea, is to do a follow-up picture of everyone. But the New York Times didn't have a budget to send me all over the world, <laughs> yeah. let alone all over the country. Yeah. I did the budget. There's about six or seven people who are in Europe or outside of the United States. And there's probably about... 50 or 60 people who are outside of New York, and the rest are close to New York. And I photographed about 400 people, and I have the contact info for about 150 people, and I figure I would probably get another 50 people's contact info from those people. So the article was really a wonderful success. It, I, I didn't realize this at the time. The New York Times has a social media presence, and it blew up. With the article. But I thought, this is the New York Times. Everything they write blows up, yeah. you know, with hundreds of responses. Yeah. But then I looked at the, their social media site a few times after, and most of the news items get maybe a dozen responses. Yeah. And I was like five, six hundred responses. That's, that's great. And it was incredible. I, 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 it was unexpected to say the least. But the thing that was most gratifying for me was I got to try to tell the story that I knew about the protest mm -hmm. through the people who were in the story. There was Alex Carvalho, who is a public health specialist, a doctor from Brazil, who founded this group with a, a friend called Revolutionary Games, which was trying to raise the consciousness of people by creating these staged play environments. I f saw their first action, which they were running matchbox cars up Broadway in like the game. The toys. Toy the cars, toys. yeah. Um, they did, they recapitulated the famous project, The Bed-In, that Yoko Ono and John Lennon did. They did that in Tompkins Square Park. Is that, so, the, is that the photo where they're just naked in bed? Yes. Around each other? Yes, yeah. because you make love, not war. No one was naked in this bed-in. They were just lying in bed together. Mm -hmm. But, the, the, you know, it was, it was a beautiful restaging of it and very playful. He, after the protest, went to work as a doctor in Brazil, because that's what he does. He volunteered to, to set up a clinic in a favela that was underneath the highway overpass. Hmm. People just built rough shelters. Uh, there was like hundreds of people living there in this makeshift town. And then he was hired by a contractor to provide health care on an oil platform in the, in the Atlantic off the coast of Brazil. Uh -huh. Pemex is the, no, um, Petrobras. Pemex is, is Mexico's petrochemical industry, but Petrobras is Brazil's. And so it was their oil platform. He was hired by a third party to be the doctor. And what he found appalled him. The conditions were unsafe. 
the people were being poisoned, mm. and the working conditions were substandard. They weren't being paid enough. And he led a labor action. He led a labor action in on, the middle of the ocean. In the middle of the ocean, on an oil platform, and the oil company said, "You must stop." And he didn't. And it escalated from there until finally, the oil company paid a doctor to write an order saying that Alex was no longer in a right state of mind,、mm, and they、wow. drugged him and put him in a straitjacket and airlifted him by helicopter and kept him in a secret location for over a week. No one knew where he was. Wow! When he was released, his doctor wrote him a prescription to come to the United States. Literally, he said, "You have to get out of here." Wow! And so I photographed him one or two days after he returned to the United States, and I got to tell this story. In short, not in that quite much. Not in this was in the much, New York Times. It was in the New York Times story,、wow. and I got to talk about how the protest lasted much longer than was apparent. That it wasn't all young white men. How it was unified in its message of economic equality, but that's a complicated message, and so I felt that that was. A meaningful contribution. I don't know how big it was. I don't know how much stayed with people. People remembered the images certainly, but it was, it was nice. It felt good, and so I still would like to follow up with all those people because we're still, as you pointed out, it's as if nothing has happened since the '60s, and certainly all、yeah. the issues that were articulated during Occupy Wall Street still bear listening to. So here we are, and so、um, and many of the people, like I said, like Winnie Wong, she just went right out from the oh they call them working groups, the sustainability working group. Who the different groups at Occupy Wall Street? They, said, they call them working groups.、Mm. She was the founder of that, and she went from there to propelling Bernie Sanders to the forefront of、yeah. the American public, and she's still at it, and so. It was as if Occupy Wall Street was a training ground、yeah. for people who wanted, who are dedicated to helping bring change, positive change, in the face of and exposing the possibility of change. It, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll all have to see what happens there. Yeah. Those chapters are being written right now, and I guess that's one of the most surprising things because you're talking about being involved with social justice movements. And when you frame the flag parade as a social justice, you know, piece, well, of course it is. But up until you said it, I never really considered you never, it. You never put that in words, right? No, it was me thinking about Martin Luther King. But, but yeah, but that's he, but that's that's the your... epitome of social justice, absolutely.、Yeah. So it's just me. Sometimes we don't go the last mile in terms of labeling because that aspect. It's useful for other people who are trying to organize the information, but for those who are creating it, it comes from someplace else. It's not, oh, this is social justice, so I need to do it. Right. So I find myself in this position now, where I was contacted by this wonderful family foundation, the Gund Foundation, that's based in Cleveland, and they do a lot of wonderful work giving to arts communities and and organizations. Dedicated to social justice and social the social welfare, and every year they sponsor a project which explores the work that they do and the work that happens in Cleveland in general. 
And it's about different topics each year. One year it might be the river, the next year it might be education. Mm -hmm. And this year, the idea is activism in the arts. And so artists and art organizations whose practice is dedicated to social justice and social change are the subject matter. It's super complicated because what does that look like? Does it look like anything in particular? How is it photographable? So working with the organization that works with the Gund Foundation, so there's an intermediary, a design firm, I proposed a line of inquiry that they liked. And they said, okay, why don't you do this project? So I've been working on that since January. There's all these wonderful organizations, like there's this wonderful revolutionary bookstore called Guide to Culture, with culture spelled K-U-L-C-H-U-R. And they have a number of programs. One program that I want to look at when I return is where prisoners write to them and ask for books, literature to read, and they then send it to them for free. Mm, wow. Another project that they do is they just provide a space for poets to meet hmm. and talk about their work and continue on. And the, the founder of the bookstore, a man named Rafiq Washington, he has a band. He fronts a band called Morning a Black Star, mm-hmm. M-O-U-R, Morning a Black Star. And it's, Cleveland's a very musical city. It doesn't have the name that Detroit has with Motown, but there are a number of very prominent, famous recording artists who come there, and that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is there. And the band really participates in that musical tradition, borrowing from funk and R&B and creating this modern fusion with beats and all kinds of wonderful things. And they have a horn section. So it's like a, it's, it's old school and the singers are wonderful. So I, I photographed that. So is your project to document all these different? No, it's not to document them. It's to talk about their practice. And that is a challenge. So when I go back in March, at the end of March, I'm going to complete a project that I started in January. So a young lawyer named Amanda King founded a group called Shooting Without Bullets Mm -hmm. because Cleveland has an epidemic of gun violence, which has been claiming the lives of people like Tamir Rice, who we all know about, but many, many unnamed children and adults. And it's, it's violence that's not just civilian violence, but it's police violence. And there's no recourse, and there seems to be no solution at hand. So... She created this photographic project where she gave, ca- gave cameras to these students and they were going to photograph their communities and they were going to be concerned with social justice and mm. the welfare of individuals. And as a lawyer, she understands how these tools can be brought to bear. And important and, too. And important, yes. So this group could not be ignored in this project. So I contacted them and I said, would it be okay if we arranged for the students to photograph portraits, an individual portrait of a police officer? So each of the members of Shooting Without Bullets would go to a police station and with the police officer's permission, do a portrait. And then I would do a portrait of a student in school 
being a student, which is their profession, and the two would be paired together as a diptych. Hmm. It would have been nice to be able to ask the police officer to make the portrait of the student, yeah. but that would go too far. I don't think I could get honest images from the police officers. Not that they would be incapable of it, but I couldn't imagine they would be interested in it. Right, right. It'd be extra work. Yeah. Which they wouldn't be interested in. Well, it's, it's hard to say, of course. I never like to presuppose, because I've met all kinds of police officers, but the culture of the police force is such that the culture is uninterested. Yeah. And so even if an officer had an interest, the commanding they, officer they, may, they, they, may it, not it, allow it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. Yeah. So the second best thing was for me to make the photographs. And I didn't think that was so second best. I knew I wouldn't, I would be, I was happy with those portraits. Yeah. And so I'm in March, I'm going to be going back and they will be photographing police officers. Mm. And so that's the kind of project where I'm exploring right. the practice that they're doing and making work from that. And that's the real challenge yeah. because some of the work is documentary. But when you see the image, it may not be clear that this is an image of social justice in action. Yeah. And with the other work, you know, I, I had an artist say, well, this is a, con this is a thing that you're creating. And I said, talking about this the project. shooting without bullets project. Yeah. And I said, yes, but I didn't create shooting without bullets. I didn't create the Cleveland Police Department. I didn't create this condition, which I'm trying to make visible. That's all I'm doing. I'm just making it all visible. Yeah. It all existed before I got there. So what I'm doing is just arranging conditions so it can be seen. It's like if something exists behind a closed door, yeah. it's like opening a door. It's an intervention, I mean, but not such a large intervention as you might think. It's similar to what you were talking about earlier about the the man who photographed the the girl in Vietnam. Oh yes, right. The I, mean, I mean, photographer. That, the way that that photograph existed and then became an image to represent the war, right? That well, sort, of, that sort, that sort of like visibility about what the war meant, in contrast to all the other photographs. Well, this is something that you're bringing up. Not that he staged that photograph or intervened. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's, I mean, I think part of the power of that is when you look at that, you just see how it is. Oh my gosh. You know? I couldn't look at that image for years as a child to see this young naked girl running, screaming with every and ounce of her life. what was the name of, of the photographer again? Oh, you know, I'm going to have to Google oh. his name. I'm not very good with Vietnamese it's, names. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, I should know. I met him. He's yeah. a wonderful man. Um, it would be nice. I mean, goodness, I don't know if I could imagine if these images could have that kind of resonance. But the idea is to allow that possibility, you know, to make this disconnect yeah. in power visible because when the students are behind the camera, they will be the person in authority. Yeah. And I explained that to them. We had a workshop that was held at the Cleveland Museum of Art where the museum graciously pulled maybe 40 photographs that I asked them to pull from their collection, portraits, from the time of Julia Margaret Cameron yeah. to Dawood Bay to everyone in between. Brilliant, brilliant portraits. And we talked about agency. We talked about what it meant to see a person. 
We talked about the responsibility of seeing a person. We talked about what happens if a person appears angry or even vaguely hostile. Mm -hmm. You know, the responsibility to see clearly at all times and that this was an image that they were responsible for. Amanda, the founder of the organization, was very concerned that this could be an opportunity to create a fiction of happy teenagers photographing happy police officers all living together, you know, in in a harmony that doesn't exist. Yeah. And I explained to her, I said, no, as an artist, that would be the most failed picture to go in there with a preconceived notion. I, I wanted to make sure the students knew that they could talk to the police officers and yeah. say, maybe could you move a step forward? Yeah. Could you put your hands here? And I will be there as Amanda will be. Amanda will be there because the students know and will feel comfortable in the situation with her as an adult presence. Yeah. And I'll be there to run interference to make sure that, you know, if the police start making the job of the student photographer difficult, I can calm it down very yeah. quickly so that the student can do the work that they need. Right, right. And that's because I really want to see what they see. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to see. I'm really excited about that. I mean, I think that's where I think, I think your work is interesting that way. I mean, this is something that I think a lot about in terms of social practice, social justice art. And I think the difficult thing with social practice, relation aesthetics, whatever you want to call it, is the fact that art, is inherently something that is about the artist's ego. And social justice is something that is generally not about the individual's ego, but the helping of everyone else. And I think the conflict that I see in a lot of social practice work is the fact that, like, how can the artist maintain their voice without overwhelming the message of the social justice? And I think at least the way that you've been describing your works, especially with like the Cleveland Project, right? And allowing the students to take their own photographs, but even within your own words, saying you're interested in what the student sees, what the, how the photographs turn out with how the students take the photographs, what, how they view the world, that interests you more than your own image. Well, I know how I would photograph the police right, already. Right, right, right. And these are people who in part live in fear of the police. Mm -hmm. It's a condition that no one would ever want to be in, but that's their daily life. Yeah. So it's a very powerful and profound condition. And why wouldn't we want to see that expressed, to see it reified so we can know it firsthand? Yeah. So it's not just me talking about it, no. but everyone can see it. And I don't know how the images will turn out. We'll just, we'll just have to take it. You, there's no, you know, I have every hope and I'll just have to see if the hope is born out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, the other projects, they kind of flow from similar concerns. Previously to the social justice practice, I was really casting myself primarily as someone in concern with the environment. Mm. And I think that yeah, prior to the flag project, well, prior to Occupy Wall Street, it was really me thinking about our interaction with the landscape. But ultimately, I think if it were to be made of a piece, it would be in part the social landscape, though not 
specifically or exclusively the no. social landscape, right. but that's certainly an ask an aspect of it. I mean, they all flow in and out, right? yeah. you know, kind of like some of my stories are very specific, right? some exactly. are metaphorical, but they all come from a similar concern. Yeah. Right. And like, I think, I think it's still so interesting that your URL is flag parade because it seems like the kernel for everything that came after, right? Oh, interesting. Yes. So that, yeah, that was the it's both the URL. Yeah. It's, it's the thing that like it came out from you and you didn't even recognize necessarily where it was coming from, but it's just something that you needed to do. Right. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It was, I was appalled at what was happening at the time and I still hold out hope. And it's funny, you were talking about with social, a social justice practice. I wouldn't say it, call it ego, I'd call it authorship, the concern for authorship. I never really cared about, well, I thought, wouldn't it be lovely if I was remembered as the person who came up with the idea of the flag parade, but I don't care if my name was lost. As long as the flag parade caught on, I would really be happy with that. That yeah. would be enough. Yeah, yeah. That would totally be enough. So yeah, so it is funny. In other ways, I am concerned with authorship. I, I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say so. No, no. But it's a delicate balance. That what I'm trying to say is, yeah. I think your approach, the way that you're approaching it, allows both to shine. And I've I've always found like my favorite social practice works are ones where the artist lets both shine. And it's oh, interesting. Really difficult, I think, to do both. You yeah, know what I mean? You have to really, you have to really be comfortable with who you are to know that you can let that thing go because the thing is larger than you. Yeah. The thing is larger than you. And if you are part of the, if, if, if your authorship stands in the way of the thing happening, well then you just have to let that go. Yeah. Because you, if you, you, you have to, you have to main, you have to keep perspective as it were. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's been a funny journey along that, along the, along the way where, I've had all these wonderful opportunities. Another project, which is a public art project, again, less directed than the the Cleveland work, but I did an artist book that will be that will be it's a public art project. It's not an opening because it's going to run for about a year that'll have it start in May of this year. Mm-hmm. It's a book that will be open to the elements where the wind will turn the pages. And it will get rained on when it's raining. And when it dries, the pages will start turning again. Mm. And over the course of the year, the paper will become softer and softer as the sizing is worn away until finally it starts to fuse into a solid object. Wow. And that takes about a year to happen. And the book I made in collaboration with a local high school in Luxembourg. And one of the headmasters at the school, the head of the lower school, a woman named Patricia Angoy, was very concerned with national origin and ethnicity. And this was before the migrant crisis. The country has an enormous international population, not just bankers, um, but people from all over Europe have come to settle there. And so now most of the citizens are foreign-born naturalized citizens and not native-born citizens. Mm. So there's this terrible lack of identity and there's no there's no focal point. The language, Luxembourgish, 
didn't exist as an official language until about 15 years ago. Mm. It was a dialect. Mm. And then it got elevated to language status. They don't have literature. Mm. In that language. Well, because it wasn't a language. Right, it was right. a dialect. So why would mm. a publisher translate? Why would people write in a language that is a dialect? <clears throat> that isn't recognized. That's not recognized. So there's no, I mean, there is a national poem a children's poem about the fox that comes out of French and German culture, and there's a particularly Luxembourgish version of it, which is quite wonderful, so I'm told by a Luxembourgish poet. Yeah. But that's the one piece that I could find, and so I imagine there are also some folk songs, but there's no Ibsen, there's no Faulkner, there's no, there's no body of literature Mm. So what is their national identity? Who are they? Mm. And so this is a really strange question to ask of a country. So I had students photographing people in the public square, and I wanted to get a bit of their personal narrative. So I talked to the students about asking people open-ended questions that could provide unusual answers, mm. like, what did you dream about recently? Mm. Or what's a song you sang as a child? And these were the questions that they asked. And from the photographs and the responses that they gathered, I created fictional characters. So there's about nine or 10 sections to the book. And I blended stories, I extended stories. So I used exact pieces of the narrative they collected, but then I I, I, I extemporized on them. Mm -hmm. Is that a word? I create. Sounds right. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I'm we'll not we'll sure. pretend like it yeah. is. And the book has a poetic logic to it where the pages repeat, but they don't repeat their subtle changes because the pages will be flipping in the wind. Mm -hmm. So in order to understand it, I needed there to be a certain sameness without it being monotonous. The book's about 900 pages long. Wow. So that there's a good bit to flip in the wind. And so I'm really excited about that project going up. And the library has been wonderfully supportive. Mm. Michelle Wallenborn is a librarian who I've been working with, and she's been extraordinary. Mm. And she's, um, she's really put every resource of the library at my disposal. Um, there's going to be a webcam on the book, wow. so we can follow it. Sadly, it will not be a live video feed. feed. Not feed it's going feed. to take an image each minute because... There's a technical issue I think you could appreciate that a, a live video feed opens the national network, which would be used in this case, to hacking. Mm. And they, it, to, to, in order to secure a live feed line to make it hard to so, hack, so it, can't be it, would just, it would be enormously expensive and complicated. Right. So to take a picture each minute and to create an animation from that, they can do. Mm. So the next best thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we talked a long time. <laughs> like a, thank you so much, Akra. Oh, you're welcome. Where can um, people find you? Instagram, I am Twitter? I on Instagram at Akra Shep, one word, A-C-C-R-A-S-H-E-P-P. -P. I have a Facebook presence, but that's really not about my practice. Well, it is about my practice. But, but you've it, got many Facebook presences right yes but that's the main one uh, 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 it's under my it's under my name across shep yeah and then there is 
What is? Oh no, I, I don't. I have a Twitter page, but I don't really use it. And then they can find your work on flagparade.com, right? Yes, flagparade.com. Yes, flagparade.org. Dot org. Dot okay. org. Yes, flagparade.org. Or acrossshep.com. Which will go to which will flag go to parades. that. Yes, yeah, so if you remember my name. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I like that you connected that. I, that's a nice thing. So I'll think about maybe I, maybe when I reorganize things. Well, because it goes your it goes like I think the first three things are like gallery and institution. And then something else. So by the time you get to the fourth one that says flag for him, like it's probably not a craw, right? Because like oh. if it is a craw ship, you should be the one too, right? Oh, I you, see. You know, if, yeah. No, th- those those are sections of my website that people have searched a lot. Yeah, and so it is very funny. I've tried to make the the header, the title of each page, but I must have forgotten well, a few. I think Google's probably confused by the fact that it says flag parade. Oh. Which has absolutely nothing to do with like your actual name. Right. So when right. you type in a cross ship, like Google's like, okay. This you is know. what I'm getting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.